0: This recording is brought to you by Freedom Time Co. Beginning in an unfurnished college apartment, Freedom Time is a collective of friends turned family. At our core, we believe that justice is gospel work. And to us, justice means living in a world where all people are free to live whole and full lives, especially those who are marginalized. Together, we curate content, events, and culture in order to spur compassion, education, imagination, and action. Freedom Time is on the journey of singing the spiritual with our lives. One that loudly echoes, to be a lover of justice is to be fully human. We are Freedom Time Collective.
1: Great, all right. Uh, my name is Neil Spatafora. I am currently in Denver. Um, I'm here about half the year. I am a Masters of Divinity student at Princeton Seminary, and uh, I'm starting my second year there in the fall. I've been working alongside uh, everyone in this group for a while now, and it's always taken different contours as we've uh, developed as people, vocationally, and where we've been geographically. Um, but this group has always been a source of solace to me, uh, and it's been very good for me. Uh, with that being said, I'm going to be talking about um, basically an, a, a model of education that I think liberates, and I don't want this to be too uh, luxury. Um, and if I am a 30th as pastoral and graceful as Kenny, my job will have been well done. (laughs) Uh, so with that being said, I'm going to just maybe talk for 10 minutes or so. I'm going to share some thoughts about, uh, kind of liberating education, and then I'm going to kind of open up the time for some reflection I'm going to have you all choose some resources that you'll engage with going into the future, uh, or at least uh, look through some resources. But the goal of this is to essentially set a platform for what it would look like to uh, educate ourselves, to educate others, to learn from others as we go forth in uh, learning about oppressions and the dynamics of it, specifically racial uh, injustice and oppression. So. Um, yeah with that being said let's start with a quote from the french uh west indian philosopher and kind of a revolutionary thinker his name is Franz fanon and he said what matters is not to know the world but to change it and i believe uh this quote is the spirit of revolutionary education uh as we engage in the work of liberation as a group as we educate ourselves and others on the dynamics of oppression we must acknowledge that the way we've been educated in the Western world has been aimed to form a certain type of person and to view the process of learning through a certain lens. So my hope here is that we can reimagine what it means to educate and to be educated. So we'll do this by revisiting our colonial past so that we can in turn better articulate and practice um, what freedom will look like in the future and going forward. Uh, and foremost, I do want to clarify that these thoughts are largely unoriginal, and they're simply echoes of people like Angela Davis, Willie James Jennings, James Cohn, uh, Tema Okun, great thinkers, and I'm simply kind of microphoning what they've said. Uh, yeah, so with that being said, we can dive into it. So due to our uh, history of long-lasting colonialism, of imperialistic endeavors, and the horrors of transatlantic slaves, Uh, the slave trade, um, we uh, are learning the way we view education in the Western world has been set on our particular path. And this path has been blazed in service of and defense of and in creation of what I'm going to call the white masculine person. So not only the content that we have learned, but the very ways in which we learn reflect this brutal history in the West that is aimed to prop up this white masculine person. So a theologian I just mentioned by the name of Willie Jennings sees education in this nation in the West as one that circulates around three characteristics of this white masculine person. Um, and these characteristics of education for this person are possession, control, and mastery. So these are uh, not the, the, the subjects of one knowledge, so that whatever subject you're learning has been seen as something to be possessed, claimed, grasped, arrived upon. And whatever subject it may be, too, botany, choreography, literature, um, knowledge of that relative subject was to be under one's control, to be mastered through rigorous, oftentimes dehumanizing and disembodied study. Uh, And this is contingent. This isn't how education has to operate, but it's how it's happened here because of colonialism. Um, And I want to say too, if you have any questions, please interject in the chat or just unmute yourself at any second. Um, But this will only be maybe four or five more minutes. So these uh, characteristics of the white masculine person rear their head culturally in the common assumptions and habits revolving around education. So these assumptions and habits of this white masculine person, this person that has dominated the West can be seen such as perfectionism, a sense of urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, either or thinking, power hoarding, a fear of open conflict, uh, paternalism, individualism, objectivity, and the right to comfort, a plethora of habits that many of us are uh, most likely familiar with if we've been educated on these shores. And I'll touch on a few of these habits. And then I'm also going to offer a resource for us to consult and further draw upon. So uh, let's look into perfectionism. Whether we do this to ourselves or onto others, perfectionism forces us to point out what is wrong in a body of work or a person, to point out inadequacies in, our, inadequacies in ourselves or others, uh, to see mistakes as a fruition of personal shortcomings, as opposed to just seeing mistakes for what they are, simply mistakes. So. Knowledge of a subject is not something to be perfected, right? This is, this is how we've been taught, but that's just simply not true. That's not what we want. Education and the process of learning are to be continual acts of humility, acts of continual revision that are inclusive in both their critiques and encouragements. Um, and then take, for instance, worship of the written word. Uh, and this is simply saying that non-written works are undervalued. Um, so as opposed to seeing a multiplicity of texts in our education, and by texts, I just mean experiences, artwork, music, and the likes, we have worshipped one particular type of text that happens to be written. So, of course, this is a uh, resultant of a historical process uh, that has made the necessary supplies to write books, such as paper, printers, literacy, um, it has privileged this white masculine person. The worship of this written word is again, indicative of this white masculine person who uh, does not emote, does not desire, does not love and feel. And it's an obsession with the written word. And I'm not knocking down books. I spend most of my time uh, awake while reading a book. So I think they're great, but and they can be a source of liberation and they're beautiful, but we must welcome and make space for non-written works as well. Another one that I'll just briefly touch on is this either or thinking. This, it's reflective of this objective view of the world that we think we might have. Uh, and it doesn't make sense for both end issues. And it's, it doesn't make room for a posture that seeks to, uh, to appreciate complex issues as opposed to simplify them. So for instance, take, take up uh, the issue of a society in need of equity, like our society. OK, so our society at one, it needs a change in consciousness. It needs a change in consciousness. However, this same society also needs to have a structural change in, their materi- in our material and structural conditions. Now, either or thinking would say, uh, well, we need to have one or the other. I don't think that's right. To say all this society needs is a change in consciousness or uh, just a change of material conditions is wrong. In reality, we need both. Both changes can draw on one another, and as structures take shape, so too will the consciousness of the people. And as the consciousness and postures of people change, say through laments or protest, right? Ways we habituate and change who we are, so too will the structures change. I think we're seeing that to some degree, um, though not to the utmost degree in, in uh, today's climate. And then lastly, I wanna just briefly touch on to, uh, The concept that people in power are often those, uh, so the people in power are often those who occupy high positions and these same people are consequently dictating what it is to, what it is to be knowledgeable or right. And then also what it is to be wrong or impractical. Uh, and these people of power oftentimes view themselves of having a right to physical, psychological and emotional comfort. And I think that's, that's wrong. We we must remember that discomfort, and Kenny did a good job touching on this with compassion, same with Ryan, discomfort, unease, uh, patience with oneself is at the root of growth. Learning is not done in protection of this white masculine person, this powerful person who who puts out a certain type of thinking and education. No, learning is a deepening of how discomfort and even feelings of strangeness and unease uh, can influence us. And one other thing, too, is when we we begin to engage in um, educating ourselves on these issues, it's important that we do not use whiteness as what it means to be normal, or we don't use it as a metric in which we judge everything else on a continuum of. So, uh, for example, I study theology. In theology, there's a field called Black theology right? So this tradition comes with a host of writers and activists whose contributions to theology are uh, irreplaceable. And there's a common assumption, though, that normal or proper theology or just theology is uh, like the objective take, where in reality, that type of theology as white folk have practiced it, is just uh, reducible to the same type of social identity, a white person in the same way black theology is. So similarly, one might think that there is a feminism and then black feminism as an add-on to like normal feminism. I don't think that's right. We, can, we cannot see the work of black people on some continuum of normative whiteness, of whiteness defining what is normal, rather black social theory, black feminism, black theology, black music. And this goes not just for, for uh, kind of black, studies and such but this goes for indigenous queer disability studies uh class-based theory a host of different uh traditions but all these are reducible to a social identity in the same way white writers are in the same way uh uh black black writers are so um yeah i just think that's an important note to have in your mind that that black people aren't offering some like abnormal take on the world. It's an experiential perspectival take in the same way that white people do when they write. Um, And then lastly, uh, yeah, so as education has persisted on these shores and it's been wanting to form this white masculine person who possesses and controls and can claim what they learn, uh, I want to push against that and say um, education is a means unto liberation. It is a way in which the humanity of all people, of all people, is manifested and represented. So uh, even though we may be set uh, on a particular way of really wanting to, to better understand something, that's not, that's not entirely wrong, but we just can't assume that once we've grasped a certain subject, that's, that's like the end goal. Um, and what I'm saying is that is, uh, Education uh, should be seen as a means to, to liberate all oppressed people, including the oppressed people who do not have access uh, to certain models of education, such as literacy. So if we view what it means to be free, as to have education, to be an educated person, we're necessarily excluding people, such as those who do not have access to literacy from being educated people or morally formed people. So again, education is not an act of mastery, control, and possession that will form us sense of image and likeness of that white masculine person. No, it's a trajectory towards liberation and freedom. As we learn and teach others, we ought to be situating ourselves in a radically inclusive narrative of setting all captives free and not just that individualistic task of accumulating and perfecting knowledge. Um, a radical practice uh, of education like this sees a poor black woman as a teacher of sorts, who in her very social identity is offering a type of text, right? A text that will challenge the texts uh, rec- that our professors put forth as required readings. Um, so with that being said, as we began to, to go forth and read the likes of Cornell West, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, as we learned to lament with the blues and heart of Marvin Gaye and Loy- Lauren Hill, Uh, And as we sit with and learn from the disenfranchised in our prisons and on our streets, may we see our learning and growing within the narrative of liberation and freedom, a narrative that runs radically against the contours of the white masculine person that these shores have so long hoped to form us into. Again, the purpose of this education is not to know the world, not to master the world, but to liberate it. Um... With that being said, I'm going to put some links in here, and it's going to offer some resources. And I just want you to, uh, one, if you have any questions, comments from anybody, please interject and and ask them. I'm going to enter the links into the chat. So the first one I am sending here is, let's see. That will take you to a list of resources for educating oneself or sharing with other people. I found this document to be incredibly helpful. And two, if you don't find anything that, that's particular to your liking or what you're interested in, please reach out to any of us. I'm sure we all have a plethora of resources that we can recommend to you. Um, so that will have all sorts of different kind of a scaffolded or curated reading list, but also podcasts, movies, and so forth. And then this next link I'm gonna send is just something that you can use. Uh, I drew on this while I was talking here, but it's just something you can use to um, study. Uh, and I think it's really helpful for us as we begin to think about what it means to, to learn about anti-racism and oppression. Uh, so please, um, I would ask you just maybe take a minute, look through specifically that first Google document, and maybe just choose one or two resources that you'll engage with um, by the end of August. So pretty long time frame, but maybe just take three or four minutes and you can uh, choose a resource. And then again, if you have questions as you're doing that, please unmute or put them in the chat. but yeah, the hope here is just to give a foundation for what it looks like to be seeking to educate and learn from others and to do the same on to others. I'm just going to ask a couple like reflective, introspective questions before I turn it over to Ryan. And um, you don't have to answer these questions. It's just something to kind of chew on and to think about going forth. So the first one is, How have you or have not you viewed education as a type of gatekeeping, as a way in which you view those who are civilized and uncivilized, the educated class equaling a civilized class? And then as you think about that question, the second question will be, how can you undo this learning that uh, we have been taught and formed into that says education is something to be mastered and controlled and claimed as opposed to a tool for the liberation of all people. Education is not something for a civilized class, but it is something for, that we can use to liberate all people. Yeah. So just, I hope that, that y'all find that helpful. I apologize if it was too preachy. I always go back and forth on like being conversational, but then not being able to articulate what I wish I could have said towards just like acting like I'm in class, reading a paper. So (laughs) tried to do a hybrid anyways. um, Yeah. Thank you for, for the time for that. And I will turn things over to Ryan.
2: Thanks Neil. Oh, what's up, y'all? I, through reflection and consulting a lot with Brittany, um, was trying to figure out just kind of an alternative way um, to understand how we experience racism on a personal level if we, or like how we tangibly come in contact with racism and racist structures um, in our everyday life. Um, So I, I put together um, this worksheet that you guys can print off and download later, but I'm just basically going to walk through, um, how I've been using this worksheet and how I've been learning. Um, a lot of the, the research and tools in here, I'm not going to go super deep into because I want this to be local to the city that you're living in. So I completed the worksheet, um, as if I were still living in Minneapolis, um, cause that's where I'm from and I've spent most of my life. Um, I'm currently in Portland, Oregon. Um, if we could go to the next slide as well. Um, so the overview. I'm going to talk about like a little bit how this workshop came about, um, and then I'll talk about um, this ORD method that Brittany um, showed me. Or I yeah, um, objective observations. So um, kind of as Neil was saying, a lot of times we don't in the Western society take um, account of our surroundings. Um, we don't observe things and touch things and, um, and feel things in our everyday life. So um, I'm going to go, go through some objective observations of my time in Minneapolis. Um, and then I'm going to go through some reflections um, of how those observations made me feel um, and then try and interpret those for myself um, and then ultimately what decisions am I making based on all of those things um, to pursue justice? I think, um, well, I'll get into this on the next slide. And then there's a free form area, which we'll see um, Brittany added a few questions for us to consider at the end, but ideally you'll download this worksheet um, and complete it um, on your own after, but I'll walk you through basically how I completed this worksheet um, and how it's been helping me educate myself. Um, So if we could go to the first slide, Um, so injustice movements spark. um, It's usually because there's some sort of national attention. Um, In the particular case of the past few months, um, George Floyd was murdered um, essentially in my own backyard. Cup Foods is only a few blocks from where I was living in Minneapolis. Um, And I lived there for almost two years after graduating college. Um, And I needed to take some time to reflect and repent in ways that I had observed racism in Minneapolis previously, but had not engaged. Um, And I think a lot of white folks in particular um, feel a bit helpless when um, these large scale things happen, like the murder of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, um, so many others. And it feels very far out there and not tangible in ways that we can get involved in our local communities and we feel a sense of helplessness. So the goal of this workshop is just to hopefully give you some um, personal experience, some of your own observations, and then figure out how you can tangibly get involved in um, seeking justice in your local city. Um, So that's the context of this. Um, If you could go to the next slide, please, Brittany. Um, So I don't have control of the mouse, um, but this was my observation, is I lived next to Budea Makaskai, the lake right there. Um, And if you can see, there's a major um, interstate, I-35. All of the yellow and brown um, colors on the right side, um, compared to the blue hues on the left, Um, you can see that that interstate creates a divide. Um, So I lived on the west side of this interstate where all those blue hues are. Um, And when I would take the bus to work every morning, it would cross over the interstate, and then we would go north and I would go to my office. And there was a clear observation that I made that the east side of the interstate, um, the houses were not as nice. There were less parks, public amenities, the roads were less taken care of. Um, And I just wanted to make this like a really simple observation so that I feel like everyone can make an observation or a similar observation in their city. Just something that you see every day and it causes a little bit of curiosity so that you look into it further. Um, And I did want to pull Megan in. Um, She has a great observation of something that she does every day. Um, And she can talk to you about that right now if she would like to um, just an observation and tell you a little bit of a story and then I'll continue in the worksheet.
3: Sure. And this is a little more maybe, um, I guess practical or kind of a little more zoned in versus like a larger, looking at a map of your city, but it's still, I hope you guys at this point are now seeing how, as we talked about the beginning, nothing is linear and we don't live in a bubble. And so everything affects everything else. So, the way that, through education, as Neil was talking, as how we typically honor a white masculine body over every other body um, is also the way that we have kind of honored every other system. So, oh. so how that plays out. So, um, so I worked at and worked out at a small CrossFit gym uh, right down the street from where I live. Um, pretty much. The, where the gym is located um, and the people who go there, none of them reflect the neighborhood that I actually lived in. Um, in Phoenix, our um, metro line, I'm, I've only been living here for a little bit, so I feel like I'm already effing that up, but um, it essentially, as we talked, we've, there's some segregation as to who lives on the east side of that line versus the west side. Um, I live just right over the east side of it so just still where you can see the kind of like a lot of the segregation that ryan is not talking about um but basically i worked out there for three ish years um and that gym specifically was very much honoring um white masculine bodies um and women but mostly just white bodies um and also granted I was working out there and started working out there during a time where I was already having these conversations. So when we talk about anti-racist work being a daily thing to pick up on, it's very much a daily thing that we have to constantly check ourselves as people who have been born into society that always benefits us. Um, We're addicts to to this privilege. Um, Just how a recovering addict often will always refer to themselves as a recovering addict. There is no, like, I'm just mad a racist today. We're always going to be striving to be an anti-racist, recovering from the addiction to a racist structure that has always benefited from us. Um, during this time of working out there, I'm dating someone who is Black, and we would often get into, like, little fights as to why he doesn't want to work out here. He doesn't want to come to events because these events very much are not for his body, they're very much for mine, but I was so obsessed with the sport and how it benefited me that I just like, whatever, it's his thing and I'll do my thing. Um, Up until the point where I started really recognizing how I um, was very much a tool of oppression uh, myself. And You know, we can go back and forth of how, like, you know, I cleaned the toilets there and I was very much an active member there. So how could I be privileged in this setting when I'm literally scrubbing toilets to have a membership there? But because there was no representation or no room for representation or really any other body um, other than the white bodies, and I was doing nothing about that, I was very much still acting upon racist roots um, and a very much racist structured gem. Um, And if you really want to get into the weeds of how we're defining racism here, um, you know, Abram Kennedy um, or Kendi has a definition, basically, you know, a racist is someone who's upholding a racial hierarchy and an anti-racist is someone who is endorsing racial equality. Um, And you have access to Google if you really want to do more research on that alone. Um, But yeah, so basically I had to own that and recognize where that was where I was messing up in that area, and moving forward, I then had to then address the areas that I'm seeing as a problem, Um, and that was not received well, and so I essentially had to end up choosing racial equality and humanity um, over, you know, a gym membership and a community, so um, that's a very small scale of kind of what Ryan is bringing out on the very bigger scale of um, the map we have in front of us and so forth.
2: Thanks, Megan. Um, I think the reason why I thought that that was just like super important is it gets at the idea of observing your surroundings. Um, like Neil was even saying is we've started to view, or at least as white folks, we view whiteness as normal, um, where we don't notice those kinds of things. So I just wanted to, to bring that up and this up that, um, we need to begin to observe um, and try and understand areas in our daily lives where things like um, only seeing white bodies honored in a CrossFit gym are happening. Um, So that's just like a challenge for you guys is just to use your observations, like touch, feel, see things that you see daily. Um, Because if you're seeing those things daily, then there's an accountability to do something about it as well. I think a lot of times when we see racism at the national level or we talk about systemic racism, it's at the national level. Um, There's a lack of accountability there for ourselves because it's something out there. But if we can recognize systemic racism or just blatant racism and things that we see every day, we have more accountability and we'll be reminded of those things so that we can actually take action. So I'll kind of get back to this worksheet. Um, As you can see, the Interstate 35W, really, this is a a map of housing property values. So everything on the west side, you can see the dollar amounts above, is significantly more wealthy um, than the properties on the east side. Um, And it's a pretty clear division that 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 interstate um, might play a role into that if you're looking at this map. Um, so if we could go to the next slide. Um, so after observing that, um, I just did some research. Um, I had been reading a book that my sister got me for my birthday, um, and it talked about interstate 94 in St. Paul and how that interstate ran through a thriving black neighborhood called Rondo, um, and how that interstate was built and really dispersed the entire community. Um, so I thought was interstate 35 kind of the same concept. Um, and if you look at this map on the right, um, this is actually a map from the early 1930s and 40s um, that the Housing and Homeowners Association drew up um, to, I'm sure, um, if you're from the Chicago area too, um, this is red line, what is known as redlining. Um, and basically, the blue and green hued areas are neighborhoods that are up and coming um, and thriving, or like that's what the perception was. Um, and then anything in yellow or red was depreciating or even labeled as hazardous. Um, so, this map on the right, the interesting thing about this is you can almost see that red line running right through where I 35 was. This map is before. 35 was built. Um, So you can clearly see that freeways and highways and the way that our city planning works and structures doesn't care about um, lower class um, housing and the people living there. And primarily at this time, because something that was going on in Minneapolis, um, there were these racial contracts written to a lot of the homes. And if I were to show you maps of that, Um, You can actually go, it's called Mapping Prejudice. You can see um, that in the blue and green areas, a lot of those properties um, were only allowed to be purchased um, by white people or people of European descent. And some of them were even more specific um, and who couldn't buy homes. Um, And then if you look at the graph on the right, or the left side, I'm sorry, um, it shows where freeways and the lengths of them um based on these redlined maps, um, how much land area, the the blue, the blue line um, in this graph is how much land area there is in the city. And then the red line um, is the freeway length. And you can see that freeways are more likely to be built in hazardous and declining neighborhoods, um, which were pretty much only marked that way because of perception of racial minorities that lived in those areas. Um, so based on this observation and research, I was able to find that um, that, that interstate was built um, in a racist practice and the interstate's still around. And if you drive across it, you can clearly see the segregation that um, that interstate brings about. Um, so that was just an observation I made. I'm not gonna go too much more into detail about the systemic racism in Minneapolis. I'll point out a few more things, but. This is ultimately from my continued education um, and then how I can go from here into making decisions. Um, so Brittany, if you could go to the next slide. Um, I'm not going to go through with you like all of my feelings, but like I said before, mostly helpless. Um, I was curious as to why this was at first, because I didn't have the education prior to doing some of this research Research based on the observation. Um, so when you go through the worksheet, I would, um, Ask that you just like take time to reflect and be honest about how those observations make you feel. Um, So if we could just go to the next slide as well. Um, Interpretations. So what does an observation like seeing I-35 and the segregation that it brought about? um, What does it mean for me, you, and our community? Um, And I pulled this quote directly from the Minneapolis government website. and like I showed on the first slide, you saw the, the, uh, the map of the property values of the homes and property values of the homes are um, essentially how we tax and fund a lot of our community initiatives, school, fire, police protection. Um, and this is directly from the Minneapolis um, city website. Um, I also won't get into the math about how higher property homes don't actually have to pay their fair share because they allot the percentage um, to all of these various property-valued homes, Um, and oftentimes lower property-valued homes have to pay a higher percentage of property taxes based on how it's allotted. Um, But as you can see, even just this redlining and the way that our systems are still in Minneapolis continue to disadvantage um, and provide inequity in the city. Um, so if we could go to the next slide as well, um, so now I have some decisions to make based on what I know. Um, I cannot do anything. Um, I don't live in Minneapolis anymore. Um, but I can still get involved in a few ways and I likely will move back there because that's where my family is. I have some other plans that I'm not going to share now, but, um, you should ask yourself, what am I going to do? What is the community going to do? And then who's already doing work? Um, Likely, there are Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks, Latinx folks who are already doing this work because it actually affects them. And they need to do this work to get out of the oppression that these systems have created. Um, So I'm I'm late to the game. Um, But one thing is to stay educated, vote locally, volunteer, donate. Um, and offer professional services. For example, my friend Azar, here in Portland um, is doing an initiative. He's a designer and it's called Loving Color. Um, and he's offering free WebEx and UI design and, and branding tools to nonprofits um, and justice initiatives owned by um, black women and people of color. Um, so if we could go to the next slide as well, I'll kind of go through some of the specific things that I found that will help me Um, and keep me accountable to doing those things that I just listed. Um, So something I did, I created a separate Instagram account to follow local justice initiatives. Like this is so easy and I think that you all should do this. We all have our friends on our Instagram and social media accounts and a lot of these new accounts that we've probably followed um, since the Black Lives Matter movement sometimes gets left out in our feeds. Um, so I created a separate Instagram where I specifically follow Minneapolis only accounts and I can have, um, accountability for myself to check this at least once a week and see what's going on in my city. Cause a lot of these local initiatives, um, provide clarity and direction on things that I would want to know about and be involved in, but usually don't get brought to the forefront of main mainstream media attention. Um, for example, I follow this account called Isaiah.org and Daily, they've been posting um, the new charter amendment in Minneapolis to defund the police um, and how that progression is going on. So they had a community meeting um, with open and public comments and discourse um, on the 15th, Friday. Um, So you were able to input public comment um, and get involved in that way, where normally I would have not known about that. Like I would have known the timeline and all these things. Um, And then... Minneapolis is uh, involved in a 2040 plan, where they want to. It's rather broad, but it's an extensive plan. And you can go on the site and figure out ways to get involved to create a more equitable city for Minneapolis, as well. Um, And then if we could go to the next slide, as well. I'm kind of zooming through this, because this is more just like an overview of what I've done. And um, hopefully, you can take this and actually um, implement these into your, your life in your city, but um, I'm really into data. I'm a huge nerd. I pulled like all of MPD's um, police stops from 2008 to 2020 a couple weeks ago and this weekend, and I'm just like doing pivot tables and charts and like seeing all the inequities there. Um, so something that would be good for me would be to volunteer for this organization called Mapping Prejudice, where they actually go through all of the, um, the racial covenants in Minneapolis from the 30s, um, and they have you read through them and input the data, read line by line, and you can input if there was a racial, co- racial covenant of that property so that they can add it to their map. And that can help further educate people. Um, and then you can also, um, I followed this uh, organization that I found about through Isaiah as well called Hope Community. Um, and they help fight gentrification and support local housing. Um, Minneapolis was actually one of the first cities to uh, dismantle single family housing zoning laws as well too. So now there can be multiple families um, in different laws. And if you read about zoning laws too, in your city, you'll probably see that those zoning laws follow the redlining maps pretty significantly as well. Um, And then keep movements going, Minnesota Freedom Fund was it went national, like my favorite artist, James Blake, was like giving money to it, but that existed before the murder of George Floyd. Um, And that's something that I should have been giving to and known about um, beforehand. And I'm sure that there's similar things in your city. So just to be proactive in finding these organizations that um, help keep the movement going, um, dismantle our our prison system, which is also inequitable. So if we could go to the next slide. and then I just have like some additional observations uh, based on this police data that, this is gonna be more quick just cause I don't wanna belabor it, but um, black East African, Latinx, and indigenous communities suffer from um, more discrimination and police violence. Um, as you can see, 60% of use of force in Minneapolis from 2008 to 2020 um, was used on the black population. Um, yeah, and they only make up 19.4% of our population. Um, So you can see that there's a clear policing problem um, and that's further reason to get involved in the new charter amendment to to defund the police. Um, And then obviously like my reflections is anytime you see um, innocent black men and women, uh, persons murdered um, by the state, um, it's angering and it's sad and frustrating. and we can move on from that reflection. I'll just get mad. Um, So if we can go to the next slide as well. Um, And then interpretations. Um, I took the time to read our entire city budget, um, and you all have access to that in your cities as well. Um, Something that in particular to Los Angeles, where I was living um, just last month, Um, they have the People's Budget of LA, where Um, They propose their own budget um, and petition to the mayor's budget. Um, And that involves um, defunding the police and reallocating resources in a way that actually benefits the community. Um, So you can read your city's budget and you can petition it and you can um, support organizations that are already doing that. Like Black Lives Matter LA is doing that. Um, So I'll just encourage you once a year, you just have to read, read even just sections of your city's budget. It was like 400 pages, so it took me a long time. You don't have to do all that, but you can if you want. Um, and then kind of the same um, decisions as before. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that's basically like my process and I'm still learning and how I can actively volunteer and get involved. I move a lot, so like this is super important for me to identify um, ways that I can actually create justice and get involved in justice work in my city. Um, I have moved like, I don't even wanna tell you guys how many times I've moved in the last four years, but too many. Um, so yeah, do you guys have any like questions about that? I'll, I'll link the, uh, the worksheet so you guys can complete it yourselves for your own city, but really it's just a great tool for accountability um, for yourself and provides like um, an easy entry into doing work. Um, with things that you interact with every day, which I think was a barrier for people to getting involved in justice work. They often feel really helpless.
0: Ryan, I was just gonna say, and as well as like all the speakers and facilitators and um, just all the backward of this, it's super appreciative. I, I really, I can't wait to look at the worksheet thoroughly because I would love to share it with my students in Chicago. Um. So like youth could feel empowered to like, you know, research their city and see what ways instead of like normalize because I think a lot of times it's so easy to like normalize like suffering in our world and so that's like, I think the little steps are the ones that really create that
1: revolution to come about.
0: Thank you, everyone.
2: Remember the agenda.
0: No, thank you. Um, It definitely, um, I will go ahead and close this out today. I do like Kenny said, um, acknowledge the silence (laughs) please. I will be silent for a long time, Um, just so that we can really um, take time to absorb all the information that was given um, and take time to really absorb the space. So um, I definitely wanted to give that time, but I do wanna say um, thank you to Kenny, Ryan and Neil Um, and Megan also for just really um, creating the space today for conversation, for discussion. And then I wanna thank you all for joining us today and taking that time with us tonight Um, because we as Freedom Time Collective uh, believe that justice is gospel work. So we really um, live by that and we wanted our friends and family to also share that sentiment with us and see exactly how we um, create that culture. So um, with that being said, also um, through our prayer and discussion, uh, we were able to basically bring our core values to life. So today you heard about compassion um, and education. And then as um, Ryan mentioned, we will have um, our next workshop on August 1st, correct me if I'm wrong. um, And that is going to be the same time, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, And those will be on creativity and imagination as well as action. So we definitely hope that you um, are willing to tune in and also join us with that. And so you can actually um, put all of this together. As Kenny mentioned before, this is very circular. um, And we definitely want all of this to be something that um, you're able to really understand from all views, all perspectives, um, and be able to live through that. Um, so I want to go ahead and just close us out um, in a prayer of litany um, so that we can really just, like I said, um, create the space. And this prayer of litany really does move into our next workshops that we have um, where we talk about creativity, creativity um, and when we also are talking about imagination. So I want to go ahead um, and clear that air, but I'll give you, give me a second and- give some time for space. All right. So God, we are made by you, imagined by you, informed in your image, created by your love. We often forget that we are creatures of imagina- imaginative potential, of creativity, that our imaginations, like yours, can be generative and life-giving useful to your kingdom. We often forget that our assumptions about you are limited by our experience here, by our words on, our, on a page, by culture and tradition, by our ego, by our smallness. But these, with these starting points and with imagination, we can let go of assuming and move closer to you. We struggle because we only know things that, are you, that you are like, like water, like bread, like wind, like a parent, like a king. But we know that these things are incomplete comparisons. Nothing we know can define you. We pause now and open our minds to the fullness of God, of which we can contain only a little at a time, a portion that gives us life and makes us hungry or thirsty for more, fueling our imaginations. This is what we ask for. To be able to move past what we can see, feel, taste, touch, and hear with our with our mortal bodies, towards a horizon, a new reality, a kingdom you are imagining, and inviting us to imagine and embody. Amen.